you are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, um, this is not a subject that one should enter into in a casual way at all. We should not seek to bring to it all kinds of our own ideas. We need to see what the scriptures say and what we as a church have received from the spirit of prophecy. And so we come in humility, admitting our ignorance and admitting that we are treading on something that is full of mystery in many ways. There are some things that we can understand, but there are many things that we cannot understand. And so we just ask that you'd send the Holy Spirit in abundant measure to each person here, so that truly this seminar would be the blessing that you intended to be. Please, for Jesus' sake. And thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. I pray that each person that is here will go away with a, a, a greater knowledge of this subject and a greater conviction, Father, about what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy teach. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, to give you a little bit of background on, uh, welcome, on the uh, seminar, it began with a, uh, well, to, to go further back, I have a website called discipleheart.com. has more than 700 pages of resources on it. Uh, I'm a, a student, student of the Bible, student of the Spirit of Prophecy. And, uh, for example, the, the White Estate published the Encyclopedia of Ellen White, and I was asked to do the research for the section on transformation. My assignment was to figure out what Ellen White meant when she talked about dying to self. And they warned me, they said, this is not about your opinion, this is about what she said, and remember, this is what God told her, and so when you actually write something about what she wrote, it needs to be what God told her to the same degree and with the same emphasis. So if she wrote about it much, you can write about it much, but if she didn't write about it much, you need to acknowledge that. And so I literally had to learn how to study her writings. I've read her writings all my life, and Rose could tell you, I have Desire of Ages marked in probably four or five, maybe three, four different colors of, of, of highlighter. But it's another thing to really understand her thinking, and so I had to learn how to look up many, many quotes, and she uses what I would refer to as archaic language, and therefore you have to figure out what vocabulary sh she used, and then you have to be willing to look up many, many words, and then you have to figure out how to, s how to sort and retain that knowledge because if you have many quotes, then you'll have to study your study to try and remember what you studied. And, uh, and in that study, I collected more than 1,500 pages of quotes. And uh, that's an overwhelming number of quotes. And so uh, I've kind of taken what I learned from that and everything else that I study, which, which appears on my, my website. But the Godhead began with a question by someone who questioned, you know, about the Godhead, like many not many, but some people do, and I thought it would be a short conversation, but it started me on a, a study that's taken maybe three, four, five years now, and I've collected, I think, over 1,600 pages of quotes now on the Godhead, what Ellen White spoke about, and if you drop by my booth at the, at, the fair, at, the, at the exhibit hall, I can show you how I study, because literally every quotation you know, has a heading, subheading, a numerical value for the quality of the quote, the year it was published, so I can sort in any number of ways and tell you exactly what she was thinking certain years and how her thinking progressed in certain areas. And so, so I spent 
a long time studying the quotes, and then I said, now I need to have a Bible study. So I spent quite a few, maybe two years, three years, actually preparing the Bible study. So there are five Bible studies, one on the Father, one on Christ, a newer one, which is actually the Ellen White statements on the everlasting to everlasting existence of, of Jesus, because that's a, a question that, that she really speaks to. And then one on the Holy Spirit, and then one on why the Bible can speak of three persons, and yet it can also speak of one God at the same time. And a lot of people struggle with that question. And I've struggled with those questions, you know, along with you folks. And so I'm sharing what the Lord has shown me. And I can tell you, for example, on the, uh, on the Bible study on Christ, uh, you know, and, and his role in the Godhead, I made it a matter of much, much prayer. Lord, how in the world do you want me to share this? I believe the Lord gave me what to share. And, um, and I've been told, actually, I was told by, by someone that belongs to a church in our area who had actually recommended the Bible study of their church board, said this is really a, a beautiful, beautiful Bible study on, on, on Christ, something that we've never seen before in quite the same way. And so others have seen this and they have a lot of confidence in it, and so I'm going to do my best to share in the way that God would like us, me to share you you should all have a booklet. Rose, could you hand out a booklet to everyone? This is the smaller booklet. Um, the Bible study on Christ has more than, I think, 360 Bible verses on the subject. And so it is a, uh, an exhaustive study on the divinity of Christ. The one in the Holy Spirit has more than 250 and in these booklets, you'll, you'll find that there are line numbers on the left as you page in. That's so that I can say, we're going to be on line such and such, and, uh, and you'll be able to get right to where I am very quickly. And these are free of charge. Uh, the Lord made it possible to print these. I have a friend who has a uh, copy machine, and the Lord put it on his heart to actually buy this machine just before... I presented this for the first time down in the south, down in uh, southwest Michigan, and so it was just very timely. Now there are line numbers on the left, and there are footnotes at the bottom, and we're going to refer to the footnotes occasionally because the footnotes give very important additional information from time to time. Um, and uh, there's a table of contents, and you can find all of these on DiscipleHeart.com, and you can download them in a variety of formats, be it booklet form. 8.5 by 11, A5 for an iPad, uh, A4, which is what is used outside the United States, and some of them have even EPUB. So uh, they're very available, and, and you don't have to pay for them either here or, or there. In terms of the subject that we're covering uh, this morning, I want to start with just a little bit of background about uh, the mystery. And let's, let's just read a, a few verses there. Let's go to line one. Says the works of creation prove the existence, glory, wisdom, and the power of the Godhead. Psalms 19:1-3 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It's true. You know, when you go around the world, you see the hand of God everywhere. Uh, and you can count. If you're in the northern hemisphere, you'll see Orion. If you go to the southern hemisphere, you'll see the Southern Cross. And when I go to, this, to the South Pacific, I look up, and sure enough, there will be the Southern Cross telling you that you're in another part of the world. 
And so Paul uh, responds, I have it in line 7, Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood. Okay, and that's the key there. So that somehow people are without excuse. For the invisible things of him from the creation are clearly seen. And in those things we see his eternal power and Godhead. Now, Job asks a question, line 11, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven, what Canst thou do deeper than hell? What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Okay? Welcome, welcome. Um, these are very significant texts as we begin because there is a mystery about what we are studying that we must never, ever forget. So let me talk a little bit about this. Uh, Psalm says, The heavens declare the glory of God. In the human body, there are things like the Krebs cycle or the clotting cycle. You know, if our bodies could not clot, you know, when we, when we cut ourselves, and maybe there's some nurses here, they could explain this better than me, there's a whole series of things that have to happen for the blood to stop bleeding. And, and if one of those phases does not work properly, you know, you could bleed to death. Now... There are some people that make quite a case for evolution, but when you think about, for example, the clotting cycle itself, how could all of those different mechanisms have, have evolved quickly enough to work perfectly? It just can't happen. Uh, here's another one that you never hear of, but I'll mention it, and that is, if it truly took millions of years for some of these things to evolve, how could a man develop the hardware and the woman develop the corresponding hardware to have babies without the race dying out. It's impossible. Evolution cannot work. There is a mystery how it works, but it does work, right? And so we, we don't need to understand perfectly, but we know enough to know that there must have been a creator, okay? And so sometimes uh, when we study the Godhead, we know enough to know what we know, but not every single detail, okay? And that's a very important point. You know, if you think that you can prove, you know, every single single idea that 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 you believe about the Godhead and prove it by Scripture and Spirit of Prophecy, there will be questions asked by other people that you really can't answer sometimes so 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 clearly. But you'll know enough to know what you know. Okay. We we continue, um, and then we we think about our survival. Um, so we need to be able to eat food, right, to survive, which meant all the plant food that we need to survive has to have, quote-unquote, evolved over a million of years so it would have been perfectly suited for us, right? And we would have needed air. We would have needed water available to us. And we would have needed the, 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 the atmospheric pressure to keep us from flying off this planet. My brothers and sisters, not only were we created, but we had to be created in a very short amount of time because even... How long can you survive without, without air? That's how quickly creation had to have happened. That's why when they talk about a long creation, it doesn't work. I'm sorry, but they never really talk about the broader picture. And so we're going to talk about some broader things. And based on the broader things, you can have confidence in what you don't fully understand, okay? Now, um, 
If you look down at the bottom of the page at footnote number one, it says, regarding the divine mystery of the essence of God, Christ ever maintained a wise reserve. Christ ever maintained a wise reserve. He did this that he might close the door where human conjectures should not be encouraged. And now, this has to do with what the Bible refers to or what Ellen White refers to as the essence of God. How he is made up, where he lives, you know, those things God has never shown you or I. And it's dangerous to even try and figure that out. And something that is dramatically different between the Adventist churches, church and other churches is that whereas the other churches have tried to figure out what is this begotting that took place, you know, that God gave his only begotten son. And then there's other places where it talks about this only son. They try to figure out the detail of that. And so in the Catholic Church, they talk about an eternal begotting. Every, every moment, the Father is begotting Christ, okay? The Adventist Church wisely said, we don't understand, we don't need to understand, okay? And so we've left the mystery where the Bible has mystery, okay? Remember this. This is very important as we go further. And, and this will truly build every day. You cannot say you understand the Godhead by only coming today. I'm sorry, you know, if you thought you could get it today. Because we have to build a foundation and we add to the foundation as we go through the week. And then, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the whole question of the sonship of Christ. What does that mean? And some have tried to, to, to explain that in detail, but the Bible doesn't explain that in detail. And it's really a very large question. How can you have, as I, we will show this week, how can you have an individual who has existed forever, okay, who is self-existent, has life in himself, how can he be called a son? The Bible calls him a son, yet he has an eternal existence. And what I'm trying to tell you is, when we talk about the Godhead, we talk about this aspect of who God is. We must understand that that there's a different language used, okay? There are words used, I believe, that help us to understand God on the basis of what we understand in life, but may only be a very poor understanding of what really is all about, such as, as you know, I can look at my hand and I know how it works, but really at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a micro level, I don't understand anything about what's going on with my hand, right? I don't understand. There is an infinity beyond which, you know, uh, to which I can't even approach. Did you know that the signature of the Creator is everywhere? What is the signature of the Creator? There's His, his, his patent number. All through creation. The number pi. Did you know that pi is everywhere? Every time you see a circle, you're looking at the number pi. And how many digits does pi go out? It's infinite. They've never come to, to the end of it. It just goes on and on. And I mean, they have computers that have gone to trillions of numbers. It's a number that they can't seem to come to the end of. And that's how the infinity of God is all about, okay? And so we are looking just at the hem just a tiny bit of what God is all about. But there's enough that our faith can be strong and we can have assurance of what we believe. So I'm not going to pretend in this class to answer every single question, okay? But I'm going to tell you what we believe and why we believe and why we can have confidence in what we believe.
And uh, so that if, if someone comes along with, with great questions, you don't need to be swept away by, by what you've heard. Okay? So, the Father is, is one of three persons. And, uh, and this, is, this is a key verse. In Matthew 28, 19, and I'm, I'm, I'm at line 20 at this point. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we study the lesson on the Holy Spirit, I'm going to show you what I refer to as the three statements of Ellen White on the three persons of the Godhead. You'll be surprised at the number of times that she speaks of the three with different terminology. So we're going to continue. We're going to mainly look at the booklet, but occasionally I will have a PowerPoint for you as well. The first thing we want to consider is the, the personhood of the Father. So, line 25, and we're not going to look at all the verses by any means. Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. When Jesus said, It is to do the will of him who sent me, do you get the idea that that's a person? Two, two individuals being considered. Absolutely. Look at Matthew 6, 9, the one below there. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Jesus was instructing us to pray to his Father. And then another one that is a, is a very good one is found in Luke chapter 22, verse 69. And I'll just tell you what it, what it says there. I have a Bible here. And if you have a Bible, we can look it up together. Luke 22, verse 69. It says there, it says, Hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. How can a spirit sit at the right hand of God? When I pray, you know, and, and I think about Jesus being my advocate up in heaven, I'm glad it's a real person. That it's not just some sign of ethereal spirit. You know, we have, the, Paul speaks continually about how Christ sits at the right hand of God. How can anything but a person sit at the right hand of God? So we clearly see that, that there is distinct personhood about the Father and about Christ. So that's, that's an important point. Now, we also want to discuss the fact that, that, um, that the Father is eternal. Now we're going into something I want to explain for just a moment, because this is another key point. When we talk about God, we're talking about attributes of God. And there are those attributes that are referred to as non-communicable attributes, those attributes which God has that makes him God versus those attributes that we could share in common with God. For example, God is the only one who can say, I am, and is as much a part of the past and a part of the future and the present at the same time, okay? Um, God is self-existent, and we'll find verses about that, that, that God did not depend on anyone else to come along, that God is all-powerful, the the fancier word there is omnipotent. Okay, He can do anything. Uh, God is present everywhere. He is omnipresent. God is all-knowing, omniscient. And he's unchanging, immutable. You know, the Bible says, I change not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so those are the attributes of God that if, if an entity has that, those attributes, you know without a doubt that that is an individual who is part of the deity, okay? Who is God? Now, 
God is also true. He's loving, merciful, forgiving, good judges. You know, he judges. Those are attributes that we have to a certain extent. Our judgment may not be righteous like God's judgment. Our goodness may not be even close to his goodness, but we can have some of that. But none of us have any self-existence. Would you agree? None of us have that. None of us can say, I have eternal life. I can give eternal life. None of us can do that. And so it's important to realize that when we're talking about God, we're talking about something different than just a, a good, kind person. We're talking about someone who has this, this eternal life resident within himself. In fact, God has always existed. And that's a hard one for us to understand. How can we, who think in linear terms, think about a God that, that just has, has, has no beginning and no future? So that's an important point. And so uh, you find that, that there are some attributes of God. And so at line 41, the Father is eternal. Okay? And so I want to have you just read Psalms 90, verse 2 at 46. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Would you agree that that is a, is a, is a phrase that refers to a, a, a past that is eternal? and a future that's eternal. Okay, and there are some of these verses, and I list a few of these verses here uh, in, the, um, in the booklet. Okay, and then Psalms uh, 93, verse 2, line 49, Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. Thou art from everlasting. Now, the Father is existent. Actually, I want to share with you a quotation on the Father as I am. What does it mean, I am? I am means an eternal presence. This isn't in your booklet. I am means an eternal present. The past, the present, the future are alike with God. He sees the most remote events of past history and the far distant future with as clear a vision as we do those things which are transpiring daily. So when God thinks about the past, when God thinks about the future, to him it's always right now, as far as God is concerned. And he's been a part of it, and he'll be a, a part of, of, of the future as well. Now this is, the I am is the most sacred name of God. Some people think that anytime you, you see that word Yahweh, it's referring to God the Father. But you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised because I'm going to show you a quotation in just a little bit that talks about communication between heaven and earth after the fall. So let's continue a, a little bit further along. So, I am means an eternal presence. So, line 53, the Father is self-existent. Uh, line, John, uh, line 54, John 5, 26, the Father hath life in himself. Or, um, well, one verse is enough. We won't go through all the verses. You can read more of the verses on yourself. The Father is great in majesty and above all gods. The majesty part of it isn't usually listed with one of the non-communicable attributes, but just the same, none of us really have that kind of inner majesty, the majesty that caused Moses' face to shine when he came down from the mountain. The Father is unchanging. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. And uh, James 1.17, line 77, And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I'm so glad that God doesn't change, that we can count on God. And it's interesting, on a very practical basis, 
Do you know why I believe with all my heart that the Sabbath is on the seventh day? Because when God put the memorial to creation on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, he put his memorial in time. And you and I cannot change time no matter how hard we try. You and I cannot change time no matter how hard we try. And so God put his memorial in something that is beyond the reach of man, even though man has desperately tried to change it. We continue. Okay? The Father is present everywhere. Line 79. Um, it says... Psalms 139, 7-10, Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? And then it speaks about how God is everywhere. Uh, Psalms eleven four: The Lord is in his holy temple. That's line 80. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyes try the children of men. God can be omnipresent. Yes, brother? This Father can be present everywhere. Um, you're going to explain how that does not relate to the Kellogg that is in the rock and everything. Yeah, well, the problem with Kellogg to a certain extent was, first of all, it was pantheism, and so God was kind of in trees and stuff like that, so it was not a person by any means. Um, and, and when it says that God is everywhere, I believe that, that omnipresent refers to his knowledge of everything everywhere, not necessarily about his being presently in person everywhere at the same time. Yes, brother. I think it's, it's kind of a semantic type of thing. We misunderstand because we don't understand that God is ever-present with us. He's not ever uh, in every living thing. Yes, yeah. Which is, which is the, the... I hope God is in my heart through the Holy Spirit. But I don't believe he's in the wall or a tree or something like that. Okay, that's kind of the, where Kellogg was going. Which is just a depersonalization, really a, a downing down of what the Godhead was all about. And I should mention, if you have questions, I forgot to bring them. We'll have you write down your questions so that we can take them you know, later, because this will all build. We continue. So, the Father's all-knowing, omniscient. Uh, the Father's wise. We're not going to go through the rest of these. You can look at these on your own. When I put together these booklets, I tried to make them very complete. At line 222, I talk about the Father judges. And some people think that judgment is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, have you ever been falsely accused? Were you glad when you were exonerated? Yeah. Judgment is good news for God's people. That's why the martyrs cry out from under the altar, How long, Lord, holy and true, before you judge? and avenge our cases. And the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 says, and judgment was given where? In favor of the saints. So God judges, and he has a, a, a true judgment. And so Psalms 82 verse 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Anyway, now then, going to line 229, the Father represented himself through Christ. Notice this quotation. After... And this is a really big key point when you study the Godhead as an Adventist. After the transgression of Adam, and it's actually at footnote number six below there. You can find it there as well. After the transgression of Adam, the Lord spoke no longer directly with man. The human race was given into the hands of Christ, and all communication 
It's footnote number six on page 12. And all communication came through him to the world. In other words, after the fall of Adam, anytime you hear God speaking in the Old Testament, it is the Lord Jesus speaking. It is not God the Father. Have you ever thought about that? Now, if that is true, there's a verse in, in the book of Exodus. I want you to look it up. Exodus chapter 6. And some of this I will, I will mention again later by way of passing, but this is just a key point that we need to understand. Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, Elohim, but by my name, Lord, and the word Lord there is capitalized. I'm reading from the New King James. What's the word behind Lord when it's capitalized in the New King James? It's what? Yeah, it's, 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 it's Yahweh or Jehovah is actually pointed with the words. The, 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 yeah, exactly, exactly. So Jesus is saying at one time, I revealed myself as Elohim, but now I'm going to reveal myself, and I'll use the word that a Jew would never use, I'm going to reveal myself as Yahweh. And so when you hear Yahweh speaking to someone in the Old Testament, that is Jesus. And so Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. Did we not read the quotation that after the fall, Christ took over all communication? Yes, brother. Is the word of God. He is the communication. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. He is the word of God. He is the communication. But but many people miss that very important point. They say, where is Christ in the Old Testament? Well, he's he's there more. And, and, and it's interesting when it speaks of uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Actually, it's because the name of the Father is what? It's Yahweh. That's the most sacred name. And the name of, of Christ is Yahweh. He applied that name to himself. And I've not found the lecture but I was told that actually you can find places in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit identifies himself as Yahweh as well. All three of them claim the right to use the name Yahweh. That's why the Bible can speak of one God. And it's still true. But many don't realize that Jesus took over all communication from the Father. And so the Father chose to represent himself through Christ after the fall. And so there's far more there, yes, in the back seat. I came here to the United States first time in 69. Okay. You, you brought up a point that Ellen White actually talks about, the, the, and my wife talks to me about it sometimes, so I'm aware of that because she's pointed that out to me. I don't have where the, know where the quotations were. Using the Father's name respectfully. And Jesus is immediately. Yeah, yeah. Without him, I'm yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I, I do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, well, I think the point is, is that the name is so sacred. We need to be very careful about the use of God's name. I think that's the big point that that, that was being made. But let's let's try to write down questions. Otherwise, we won't get through this morning. Okay. Anyway, um, so the Father represented Himself. Through Christ. And that's a very, very big point. Look at John uh, 1 18, line 244. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then in line 255, Colossians 1 15, 
who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Okay? So God sent a representative of himself. And then Hebrews 1, 2-3, and maybe I should let someone else read sometimes, is who can read from line 257, the verse right there? Anyone want to read? Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by his word of his power, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged out sin, sat down on the right hand to the national high. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by what? His Son, yeah, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He's spoken unto us through his Son. Now, some other, some other points and another point that, that is worth bearing, and that is line 263, there is perfect oneness in his character. That's part of the representation. And so, um, line 266 for now, I and my Father are one. That didn't refer to them being the same person, but they are in perfect unity. And, uh, and there's some, some great significance there. Now, let's go to line 267. The Father was involved in creation. Let's, let's have someone, you know these verses, someone read line 269, uh, please, the verse there. Okay. Now, and then someone else read the next one, Ephesians 3 9. And make all things that men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus. So the Bible says, and God created beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but yet at the same time it says that God created all things through Christ, right? And that's an important point, that the Father used Christ to create, but yet at the same time the Bible speaks of the Father being the creator, and even speaks of the Holy Spirit being involved at some level in creation too. Not a lot of detail on that, but we find that they were all there involved. Someone look up 2 Corinthians 519, we see another kind of a thing similar, but in a different domain. 2 Corinthians chapter 519. So, someone read for us. Anyone? 2 Corinthians 519? Yes, please. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Okay. This text leads us into our next session, but, but God was very involved in Christ in terms of reconciling the world uh, to himself. Now let's go to line 276, and we're going to look a little bit at the Father in relationship to humankind. Um, line... 277, first of all, God is often referred to in numerous scriptures. Deuteronomy 32.6 says, 
Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not thy father that hath bought thee, hath he not made thee and established thee? Notice the word father is used there. Look at Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. There are repeated instances of, of the name father being used for God. Um, and Jesus in John 5.30, line 291, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father that sent me. Okay, the word Father is frequently used relative to, to God. Now notice the counterpart, because this is important too. We are referred to in a variety of ways. Uh, Exodus 4.22, who would like to read 4.22 or would you rather I just read? Maybe I should read for those that are listening to the seminar. Exodus 4.22, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my, what? Firstborn. Now that's an intriguing uh, thought there, that Israel is referred to as a son and the firstborn son. And I'm going to introduce you to a thought that we will come back to later, and that is, in Semitic culture, okay, Hebrew is a part of Semitic culture, that they often use biological terms for non-biological relationships. Israel wasn't a son, it was a figurative son, right? And it refers to this son as even my firstborn son. Like I said, we'll come back to that more later. And then line 301, Deuteronomy 32.19, and when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and his daughters. God looks to us as his sons and daughters. And then Hosea 11, 1, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Why do you think I'm sharing both the, the name Father and, and these references to sons? What? Yeah. Sure. Okay, sure. Sure. What else? Why, why might this be significant to studying the Godhead? Because it makes it a real person. There, there tends to be a personalization of and... And more than that, why do you suppose that God might have used the term father and son to refer to, for example, his relationship with Israel? Why would God use father-son relationship? It shows a closeness of relationship, right? I heard someone say close, yeah. It, it refers to a closeness of relationship. It defines the relationship in terms that you and I as human beings understand. It defines our relationship to God, because if God would have said, you know, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what, what example to use, but, but when studying, for example, the subject of, of abiding in Christ, you know, in, in, the, in the vine, Ellen White says that, that Christ is the true vine. He could have chosen the cedar, or he could have chosen the stately 
or he could have chosen a palm tree, but he didn't choose to use those. Why didn't God use, when he was talking about, for example, abiding in Christ, why didn't he use the symbol of the cypress or the cedar tree or the palm tree? Why did he not choose those trees? The vine is completely dependent. The vine is completely dependent. What else do we know about the vine? Because where I live in Michigan, and probably up this way too, there's lots of vineyards, and every year they get pruned down to almost nothing to the point that they would almost die, right? It's an ongoing pruning process. And so if you want to be a fruit-bearing Christian, be prepared to be pruned day in and day out. God will always cut away the excess foliage if you'll allow him to do it. Okay, so he used the ideal symbol, you know, for our spiritual growth. Had he used a cedar, what would have been the message? You're on your own, take a stand, be rigid. Had he used the palm tree, it was fly around with the wind, right? Now, God was very precise because he was trying to communicate a certain kind of relationship. I used to think hard, well, why does God use, why does God use this particular symbol? And actually, God is usually talking about a facet of relationship in that. You're acquainted with the, the story of the woman at the well. And when Jesus speaks to this woman, when Jesus speaks to this woman, uh, he says, I have water that you don't know anything about. Why did he talk about water to the woman at the well? Because she was thirsty. But when the disciples come back and they've been shopping and they're hungry, what does he talk about? I've got water. He says, I've got food, I've got bread. And God has an amazing way of speaking in terms that we can understand. And so when God wants to, to, to talk about his relationship to us, he uses the closest thing that we can understand of a nurturing, caring parent who at times may have to chastise, but in a perfect world has all love. Yes, brother? Sometimes wonder why he didn't use mother daughter. That's an interesting question. And uh, we could speculate on that, but I don't think we'll start on that today. Because that would distract us for a while. What? It was a patriarchal system. You're right, sister. And for those of you that came in late, I introduced Rose as my better equal. I have her at the highest esteem. I truly feel like such a blessed man. God chose her for me. And that subject to go all the way back to her. Exactly. Exactly. But you know what? She was made from his side, not from under his feet. That's right. Okay? And uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm a blessed man, and I think that you get what you, what, 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 you, get what you deserve, guys. If you, if you treat your wife well, she'll treat you well, too. You know? What goes around comes around, and vice versa. So. But the point is, is, that, is that God uses the, the, the term father and the term son and first begotten because he's trying to speak of relationship. And I'll be honest with you. When I read about heaven, they talk about the majesty of heaven. They talk about the sovereign of heaven. Okay? They, they talk about the supreme ruler. We don't hear as much about the father up in heaven. There are other words used there. And I've sometimes wondered if maybe the father is a word that is especially used when it comes to human beings. Does that make any sense? Without being disrespectful? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, it's a deeply spiritual, loving word. Okay. Uh, so, so we find these, these words are used, and they're very significant words. 
And for some people, they hear these words and they immediately think, son, got to be a birth somewhere. This is biological. And it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's not go there until we've you know, done, done, done other things because you get into, into trouble. Now, what about the Father's love for humankind? Look at line 309, Genesis 1.26. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God wanted a relationship with you and I. That was from the very beginning. And it's interesting that when the children of Israel are leaving out of Egypt, God says, let them build me a sanctuary that I might do what? That I might dwell among them. God wants to be in relationship with you. That's, that's the whole point. God wants you to have the most amazing, wonderful relationship with himself. And let me... Let me, let me read from Deuteronomy 7, 7 8, line 313. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were fewer than all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he'd sworn to your fathers, etc. Okay, we were chosen not because we're so mighty or so strong. It's because God loves us. And... Uh, and I'll show you a, a quotation on the, on the screen before we close, where it talks about how this world is bathed in the love of God for the wicked and the good. God, God shares his love, you know, over everyone. And that's how he wants us to see him. Now, Lotus, uh, Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. What is the idea when it says an everlasting love? What is that about? I think it will last through all eternity. A, la a love that will last through all eternity. What else do we learn about an everlasting love? What is suggested by that? God is love. He's always been love. God is love. He's always been love. It's a love that will never come to an end, either, either in terms of our, I'm going to say this carefully, but our behavior, you know, when Peter asks Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? He thought he'd already forgiven plenty of times, and Jesus said, you know, a number that he couldn't even imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so God has loved us with an everlasting love. Very much so. It's an unconditional love, although sometimes we create things that cause that love to be thwarted. Exactly. We refuse it. We refuse it. Uh, now, notice, notice the following quotation. We already looked at that. Here it is. The word of the Lord to you is, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Can we not here see the paternal love of God expressed to those who hold fast to the faith in righteousness? The closest relationship exists between God and his people. Not only are we objects of his sparing mercy, his pardoning love, we are more than this, the Lord rejoices over his people. He delights in them. God delights in you and me this morning. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? It's, it's referred to as the paternal love of, of God. We continue with another one. The Jews held that God loved those who served him according to their view. 
those who fulfill the requirements of the rabbis and that all the rest of the world lay under his frowning curse. Not so, said Jesus. The whole world, the evil and the good, lies in the sunshine of his love. This truth you should have learned from nature itself, for God maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves. And I like that. The whole world lies in the sunshine of his love. Line 326, we loved him because he first loved us. Now, look at um, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and with the woman and between thy seed and her seed. God has made wonderful promises. Wonderful promises. Let's turn the page, go to the next page. Abraham, about line 349. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. At that time, did, did Abraham seem to have indications that he was going to be this amazing large nation? No, it was, he, he'd gone by faith, he'd left Ur of Chaldee, and, and he was going, it says, to a land that he did not know. God didn't say, let me give you a travel brochure on where we're going and, 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 you know, and, and something on, 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 on the, the, the resources. He just was obedient. Then here's an even more wonderful promise as far as I'm concerned. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. God says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. God can actually put a want to and a can do, where there is a don't want to and a can't do at this time, okay? God can make a complete change. Now, God commands our worship, and the brother in the back row reminded us that. The Father is the sovereign of the universe, and uh, we are called to be respectful and reverential. And that is very, very true. Now, responding. Responding. And how long do we go in our class? Till 10.30? Or what time? Oh, okay, so we do have, we have time. First of all, God says reason. Isaiah 1.18 Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Why do you suppose I put that verse at the end of this first study? Love forgives. Love forgives. Love forgives. What else? He doesn't want us to bleed blindly. He doesn't want us to bleed blindly. He wants us to have enough to have an assurance. Yeah, and that's why we're studying. Okay, he, he wants to have a, an assured, confident faith. Run. He doesn't want to be a dictator. Okay. Um, you know, it's supreme over the whole universe, but... He wants us to choose yeah. of our own volition because we love him, not because we're forced. Yeah, God does not operate on the basis of compulsion, even though sometimes we tend to operate that way. Yes, brother? He doesn't want us to feel hopeless. He doesn't want us to feel hopeless, yeah. I think that God is basically saying, you know, whatever it is, I want to talk with you about this. And the part that I find challenging sometimes in studying the Godhead is, it seems like some people... 
Sometimes people have very strong, strong ideas about what they believe before you ever start the discussion. And there really needs to be an opportunity to do some reasoning and some discussing together, okay? Look at what the scriptures say. And then, uh, returning to God. Isaiah 44, 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed me. Now, there were times when the Israelites had made terrible, terrible mistakes. But did God restore them? It's amazing how God restored them. You know, recently, Rose and I, we were reading from Nehemiah and then Ezra, and it's just amazing to me that, that the king sent them back with the gold and the silver and the instruments, you know. Think about how much value was sent back just because he felt convicted that that was the thing he was supposed to do. Who could have imagined that one day that all those things would be brought back? Isaiah 51, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Our walk with Jesus should be a happy walk, right? It should be a happy, happy walk. So not only has God redeemed us but from our sins, but he's, re he's redeemed us to new hope that there's a purpose here and a great future in the hereafter. And Jeremiah 24, verse 7, And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with how much? At their whole heart. That's a miracle work of God. And then I write down there, anticipate a new life. Jeremiah 31, 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. I guess I already read that. I apologize. Ezekiel eleven nineteen to 20, That I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I'll take away the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Now, let me just uh, add one more, two more quotes at the end. Actually, there's still a few things here, some quotations as we close. Line 427, We can never by searching find out God. He does not lay open his plans to prying inquisitive minds. We must not attempt to lift with presumptuous hand the curtain behind which he veils his majesty. No mortal mind can penetrate the secrecy in which the Mighty One dwells and works. We can comprehend no more of his dealings with us and the motives that actuate him than he sees fit to reveal. He orders everything in righteousness. We are not to be dissatisfied and distrustful, but to bow in reverent submission. He will reveal to us as much as his purpose as it is for our good to know. And beyond that, we must trust the hand that is omnipotent the heart that is full of love. What do you learn from that statement? Does he lay his plans open fully to everyone in, in every detail? No. We will never know everything. Exactly. That's why we'll be studying. Exactly. Exactly. She says we can comprehend no more of his dealings than what he has seen fit to show us. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. But there's a beyond that he hasn't shown. But 
These are the things that we can be sure of. Line 434, he orders everything in righteousness, and we are not to be dissatisfied or distrustful, but to bow in reverent submission. In other words, accept what he has revealed. And he'll reveal as much as it is good for us to know. Now, a few quotations of Ellen White on what we've discussed. Line 440, God is a spirit, yet he is a personal being, for man was made in his image. Line 458, Christ submitted to crucifixion, although the heavenly host could have delivered him. The angels suffered with Christ. God himself was crucified with Christ, for Christ was one with the Father. Anyway, our time has run out. Do you have any thoughts, impressions, or questions as we close our time? Have we established that the Father is truly a person? What else have we learned about who represented the Father, and when did that begin? Jesus represented the Father and communicated after the fall. That's huge in understanding the Godhead. That's a key, key point. I yes. appreciate this part. It's a mystery. You know? Yeah. This whole thing is a mystery to us. If you read on, in Daniel, it talks about the daily. Yeah. A lot of people in the church would argue about who the daily is. Yeah. But I read that Ellen White said she didn't clarify who it is. She seemed to be proving people for using her speech. Yeah, she said, I've never, she said, I've never spoken. The other thing that I, I tried to share that's important is there are certain non-communable attributes that God has, eternal, self-existent, etc., that if a being has that, he is God. You can't say he's a lesser God. He is God. And when you come back next time, there'll be a much bigger booklet, okay? Much bigger booklet. We're going to talk about Christ. And the title, I don't know if I have a copy out here. I will look at a title here. And I'll be handing one out to everyone that comes tomorrow. Is... Christ, the eternal, self-existent, co-equal, divine Savior. The eternal, self-existent, co-equal, divine Savior. Anyway, it's, uh, it has 1,400, 1,500 lines, so it's a, it's a much longer study, more than 360 verses. On Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for the time that we've been able to spend studying about the Father, because that's an important base to the rest of what we study. Next time we study about Christ, and we're going to learn some things about Christ that help us build towards the Holy Spirit and then the three and the one. Pray that everyone will come back and that we'll learn together and we will be coming closer to you as we learn, trusting you more as we just read. Thank you for helping us today. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.